This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 36. And the quote of the day is one of my favorites from Vince Lombardi, who said, If you can't accept losing, you can't win. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Do you want to become a better drummer? If so, check out my new ebook, Stick Control Variations. It's 11 creative exercises that'll help you drastically improve your chops and independence fast. You can get it for free by signing up for the Drummer's Resource mailing list. It's normally $9.99, but it's 100% free right now if you sign up for the Drummer's Resource mailing list at drummersresource.com. Today we got a great show. We have Greg Zeller from the Sabian Sound Team, and Greg is going to go through everything about symbols and symbol selection and what to what to keep in mind when you're selecting a symbol, and also the differences in symbols. So, what gives you a thicker, or I'm sorry, what gives you a drier symbol, or a wetter symbol, or a higher pitch symbol, and all types of things about symbols, symbol selection, how they're made, and the history behind Sabian and Zildjian. And it's just a really great interview, and and I'm happy to have him here. The great thing is is he and I actually are from the same neighborhood, so we're going to get into that a little bit as well. So without further ado, here is the Greg Zeller interview from the Sabian Sound Team. Greg, what's happening, man? Thanks for hey. doing this today, man. This is awesome. Happy to be here, Nick. Appreciate it. So the the funny thing is, I I guess the uh, the listeners don't know is that we are we're basically from the same town, which is cool. And uh, have a ton of mutual friends, and I've heard about you for years, you know, through everybody's like, oh, you need to meet Greg, and you need to meet Greg. And then, you know, we finally got to meet in, uh, in Indianapolis in November, which was great. Right, of all places. Yeah, it is funny, because same thing for me, you know, I've heard your name a million times. In fact, I can walk to, uh, you had a family restaurant right down the street from me, and uh, we used to go there quite a bit. But yeah, it's funny how we finally caught up and I'm glad we did. You know, it's it's one thing about this industry that's remarkable to me is that, you know, it's it's pretty small in the scheme of things. So mm-hmm. it's it's nice to have uh, friends, even ones that you you hadn't met before. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's just it's like you said, it's funny how how small of a world it is. And, uh, you know, that you and I have been doing this for because I'm like, wait a minute, he lives in the same. I'm like, I how do I not know this guy? I'm like, right. I don't think he, you know, I'm like, I don't think he works for Sabian. I think he's lying to <laughs> I'm like, I would know who he is. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so cool though, man. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely glad we got to, uh, we got to connect. Same here. So how did you get into this crazy music business? How did, I always like to get the backstory of how people got into, because you play as well. So, you know, I yeah. know. So how did you get into that and then get into working with all these companies? Well, I think I think my story is is pretty common uh, for people that that end up doing what I do. But at first and foremost, I, I wanted to play the drums in the worst way, and I, like many kids, begged and pleaded my parents for a drum or a drum set or even a drum pad back in the day. And actually, started out uh, the very first instrument that I played, believe it or not, was banjo, five string banjo, and that was in fifth grade. I started taking lessons on the banjo, and uh, as I look back on it, I think that. Uh, the reason I ended up with the banjo was because it was the only thing I could find that had a drum head on it that wasn't a drum that they would let me get. Right. So I started playing banjo and then, uh, you know, started taking drum lessons too. Finally, they got me a snare drum and, and just progressed from there. 
and just always had a passion for for drumming and music and played all through school, junior high school and high school, both marching, concert, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, when I got out of school, you know, wanted to be a rock star like everybody else, you know. So I was playing in bands and uh, I was very fortunate that uh, I got to do a lot of cool things. But, you know, it's it's difficult to make a living as playing music, you know, even mm-hmm. for a lot of the people that, uh, you know, most people would perceive as being successful, quote unquote, you know, it's a challenging way to make a lifestyle. And so I started working in a, a local music store in Westchester called Taylor's Music. Yeah, man. And, yeah. That's, so where sure. I bought, that's where I bought my first drum set. Nice. Right, maybe, yeah. I might even have sold it to you. Who knows? You, you know who sold it to me? Mike Lynch. Did you work with Mike? I did. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's Mike, fun. Mike Lynch sold it to me. I'll never forget. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, my, I always tell the story. My brother was cool enough to, I was like 16 and he co-signed a loan for me to get it. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I started actually at Taylor's uh, as a teacher. So I was teaching drum lessons, private lessons. And, you know, one thing led to another. Then I started getting some hours on the sales floor and that taught me a lot about, you know, salesmanship and, and how to work with customers. But it also taught me a lot about the rest of the gear. I mean, as a musician, I think most musicians, regardless of what their primary instrument is, you have an interest in all of it. And you, you know, you pick up, my brother was a guitar player, for example. So he and I played in bands together when we were young and, you know, I would watch him play guitar and I would grab his guitar once in a while. So I I could, I could play enough that I could demo guitars, for Mm -hmm. example, at the store. And I actually played bass and stage band in junior high school for a while. And uh, so it taught me a lot about the business, you know, from kind of from the ground up, because you, one of the things that's important uh, when you do something like I do is you, you need to understand what a retailer's life is like, because if you don't, it's hard to make proper suggestions to them on how to either better manage their inventory or what product they should stock or how they can improve sales on any given product. But having lived that for quite a few years, I kind of had a working knowledge of of how that side of the business worked. And as I did that, I continued to play. And again, luckily fell into some situations that allowed me to, to leave the store for a while. I actually had about two years where I played full time. I was working at Disney for about a year. I did about a year on a cruise ship for Royal Caribbean. So they were really cool experiences. And I got to say that I actually made a living playing drums, but you know, then I got married and you know, you're, you're, you kind of change direction and you fall into a, you know, family becomes more important and that elusive quote unquote real job starts to become more important too. Cause you've got other responsibilities now. Right. And I actually uh, contacted a, a good friend of mine who was our Hoshino rep for many years when I worked at Taylor's music store and I, I kind of hit him up and I just said, Hey, you know, uh, I think I'm looking to settle down if you will. And uh, if you hear of any jobs in the industry, you know, keep me in mind. And about a month and a half went by and he called me up and he had gotten uh, a position as the vice president of merchandising for a company called Mars Music. And that was based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And Mars is no longer in existence. But, you know, for those who might know of Mars or don't, it was a, a pretty large chain. You know, there were 30,000 square foot stores and uh, there's about 40 of them uh, when it finally met its demise. But uh, that was a great experience for me. I was working with the, the founder of the company. His name was Mark Beagleman. And, and Mark was a, a very savvy businessman and also a guitar player. And I got to meet a lot of really talented people there 
uh, on the business side of things as well as the music side of things. But uh, I really learned a lot from that experience. And I did that for about four years. And as the, uh, the writing was kind of on the wall that, you know, things weren't going that well with that company. And I had a longstanding relationship with Sabian as a player for many, many years. And uh, I happened to be out to dinner, actually, with uh, the national sales manager at the time because I was working in the drum buying department at, towards the end there. And uh, just in conversation, he was talking to the other, my partner in the drum, sh- the drum buying area there. And he said, hey, did you ever find that guy for the, the Southeast you were looking for? And he said, no, nah, I haven't found the right guy yet. And kind of immediately my ears perked up. <laughs> I gave him a call the next day and I said, hey, look, I hope this isn't an awkward conversation for you, but I'd like to hear more about that position. And went up and interviewed in Boston with them and uh, got the job. So awesome. Yeah, that's kind of how it, in a nutshell, how it happened. You know, it's that uh, we were talking earlier before we started the interview, but it's it's the overnight success that took, you know, 25 years or whatever. Right, to, the long to road to overnight success. Right, exactly. <laughs> so if you had, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about, one, how I got into the industry and how, you know, I ended up working with with different drum companies. And there's a lot of people out there that, that are just like, I just want to work for a drum company, uh, yeah, whether it be a drum stick company or a cymbal company or a drum manufacturer. How do you suggest that people do that? Or how, you know, what advice would you have? Because I'm sure that you get it a lot too. Sure. You know, it's, un- unfortunately, there's not a, uh, this industry being the, the, the way it is and as small as it is, and it's, you know, it's first and prim- most primarily, I guess it's about relationships. You know, the most important thing that you can do is build a strong network of positive relationships. And you have to have the correct skill sets for whatever position it is that you're looking for. It doesn't matter if you want to be a player, if you want to be a, a sales guy, if you want to be a marketing person or a combination of all those things. You, obviously, you need to, to have the skills to do whatever that job is. Um, the challenge is that because the industry is relatively small and it's pretty tight knit, you know, it's you, you can't go to a, a newspaper or to a website often and just look for job openings because they're usually pretty rarely are they posted. You know, it's usually right. you hear of something from somebody else. Hey, did you hear that so and so is looking for a job? Or hey, I've got this open gig over here. You might be good for. So I guess the there's there's no easy way to get into the industry it's it's a lot like playing in the sense that you have to just have a passion for it because it's it's difficult to create a plan that will get you where you want to be one of the best pieces of, of advice that i got in my younger days i studied a lot with dom famularo mm-hmm. and one of dom's uh, favorite lines i guess if you will was he goes you have to enjoy the journey because the reality is, you know, when I started playing drums when I was 12 or whatever it was, I, my goal was not to be a part of the Sabian Sound Team because Sabian Sound Team didn't exist. And I, in fact, Sabian didn't even exist when I started playing drums. And, right. Uh, I wanted to be a drummer. Now, I'm very, very happy where I am, and I, I couldn't have planned it any better the way things went. But, you know, you have to enjoy the ride because you don't know where you're going to end up. Right. You know, so the key is really you have to have a passion for it. You have to develop the skills. Business sense is really important. You know, study business, learn how it works, uh, learn the products. You need to have strong knowledge about what it is that you're interested in. But really, first and foremost, is you got to have a good attitude. You got to be a good person. You got to have good relationships because that's where the the jobs come from, whether it's playing or 
selling whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with that. You know, I, the world revolves around relationships and, and, you know, people are more likely to suggest their friends or people that they know rather than just somebody off the street, you know, and a lot of people are like, Hey man, can you recommend me for this? I was talking to, to Russ Miller and he was saying that people are like, Hey, can you put me on a movie date? And he's like, right. <laughs> I, have you ever done one before? Do like, I've never even seen you play, you know, of course right, exactly. I can't do that. But you know, maybe if it was his best friend that he knows can handle the gig might be a total, you know, it'd be a totally different story. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. I always hear you're more likely, you're more likely to get a, uh, get a gig from going to somebody's barbecue than for auditioning, you know? Yeah, exactly right. That's very, very true. You know, so you, you never know. You always got to have your game face on in the sense that uh, you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't necessarily know who you're talking to at any given time. And you never know where the the opportunity may lie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just got to enjoy what you do. Like I said, I'm, I'm blessed in the sense that uh, I, I work for an amazing company whose product I love. I loved it long before I ever even thought about working for them. And, uh, you know, so it, it's great fun. It really is. I really enjoy it. And it's, you get to meet a lot of neat people and travel and do all kinds of fun stuff. So no complaints. You, you know, we were, we're talking about relationships and about how they, how they lead to different things. You, you know, Tim Shahidi. Oh, very well, yeah. Okay, so Tim, for those of you who don't know, Tim Shahady has been with Peisty for uh, 20 years, maybe? Something, Probably. Something I, I, like that. I mean, he's been there for a long time. He's a super, super human being. And uh, I got a scholarship from, from Peisty when I was in college. and nice. And so I always kept in touch with Tim. I literally hadn't seen him in 13 years, but I would, you know, we were friends on Facebook, and I would always just check in with him. Hey, Tim, how are you? You know, hope everything's well, just... Just wanted to say hello. Just wanted to check in. So I saw him at Nam uh, two years ago, and you know I was living in Hoboken. And he says, "Where do you live?" I said, "Hoboken." And he goes, "Oh, well, my friend Dave just started a drumstick company in Hoboken." And literally, Dave walks around the corner, and he's like, "And here he is," and introduces me to him. And that's how I ended up, you know, doing all the stuff that I do now with Boso. But that took thirteen years for yeah, there you go. Yeah. for that to happen. You know, so it's it is. I totally agree with you that it's it's a hundred percent about the relationships and and about you know fostering those relationships and being a good person because that stuff you know when I, when I was with Tim thirteen years ago if I was a jerk or if I was late or you know because part of the scholarship I had to work for Peisty and for for the uh, PESA convention so I had to help them set up the booth and everything absolutely and but if I was a jerk or if I was late or I didn't work hard or whatever you know the things that happen now with Bosa would have never happened so. That's, that's that's it right there in a nutshell. You know, you, you got to just keep those relationships going. You never know what's going to come around the corner. Or who's that's the other thing, too, is that, uh, you know, this this industry, it, one of the ongoing jokes is at NAM, like the faces all stay the same. It's just the business card changes. So as people change gigs, you know, they go from one company to the next. But so you never know who you might be working with next year. You know, right. if it's a completely different company than you're working with this year. So, uh, yeah, just being solid at what you do and, and positive. That's the key. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about the Saving Sound team that you have. Yeah, sure. Saving Sound team was uh, actually kind of came about just uh, on a late night discussion in a hotel one night. You know, we, we had come down, we were had some marketing meetings up in Canada at the Sabian factory, and we were just talking about some, uh, you know, new directions and changes and uh, the way the industry was changing. And we wanted to have a stronger reach to the, the actual consumer with 
providing product information, uh, training, whatever it might be that they would need to, to understand, you know, what Sabian product would benefit them the most. And, uh, this discussion kind of evolved into this concept that we call the Sabian sound team. And it's, uh, myself and Bob Rupp and we essentially split the country and it's a, uh, it's kind of a monster mobile marketing machine, I guess you could call it if you will. And it, we do things, for example, like, uh, we'll set up Skype sessions. You can go to Sabian.com and you can schedule a Skype session with either myself or Bob and, uh, talk about whatever you want to talk about symbol wise. If you have, questions on specific series, you know, why would I play this? Or I'm looking for this type of crash, or I'm looking for a ride symbol that will give me these type of sonic properties. Uh, we can dive right into that kind of thing. So it gives us a direct, literal face-to-face -face if we do the video Skype uh, communication with, with retail or consumers that can help us to get our message across to them and guide them, you know, for whatever solution is going to be best for their needs. Um, the, the sound team is kind of a, a wide scope. It's much deeper than that. You know, we, we're essentially a, a wing of the Sabian marketing branch up in uh, Canada. And so a lot of our responsibilities are involved with, you know, working closely with retailers, providing marketing strategies for them based around Sabian promotional opportunities. We also work really closely with our distributor reps to make sure that they're up to speed on all the products, how to sell them, uh, what's current promotions, uh, new products, training, all that type of thing. So uh, that and along with some artist relations in the sense that we do a lot of artist support if there's clinic tours going on or, or things like that. So it's a job that never gets boring because you're always doing four or five different things all at the same time. Right. And we have pretty large territories to cover. So, you know, you don't get it doesn't get stale that mm -hmm. you're sitting in one place all the time. But it's, you know, it's an exciting concept i think in the industry you'll probably start seeing more of that that uh manufacturers trying to get directly to the consumer and uh providing them with as much information as possible to help them make their decision sure sure now yeah. speaking of making decisions we talked a little bit off air about how when people go into you know they go into a store and they play a symbol and they maybe just tap on the on the crash symbol or they you know they may hit the bell for a second or whatever what, what advice do you have for people that are going to look for a symbol? Like how, how should they evaluate a symbol? What are, what are the things to keep in mind? What are some things that they should, you know, take into consideration before they purchase a symbol, whether it's a saving or any other kind of symbol? Well, it can be, it can be a little bit of a challenge and it can be a little intimidating at times too, when you're, when you're shopping for symbols, because, uh, my first piece of advice would be play the symbol the way you're going to play it. Uh, I see all the time I'm in retail stores and somebody will come in and they'll kind of tap, tap, tap on a crash symbol and it, nobody would play a crash symbol that way. So you can't really tell what that symbol is going to sound like. So right. a lot of times what I'll do is, you know, I'll kind of interject myself into that scenario and I'll, I'll ask the person, I'll say, do me a favor, go stand, you know, like 15 feet away from me and I'm going to play this symbol for you and I'll, and I'll play it like as if you would play the symbol on the kit. And it gives them an opportunity to hear really what that symbol is designed to do because a lot of times one thing that that drummers and i can say this because i'm one that uh, we tend to be focused on us a lot so mm -hmm. you know when we're buying our gear or we're sitting behind the drum kit it's all about i want it to sound good to me and that that is important because you know if it sounds right to you you're going to play differently or a lot of times you play better but there's a, a reality too that especially if you're performing 
that the person you know that's that is 50 feet or 100 feet away from you needs to hear what you're playing as well so if you get too caught up in it's all about me and you're not playing in a situation where you're you're mic'd with overheads and things like that you know you, you got to take into consideration what the objective is for any given symbol so mm -hmm. if you're playing paper thin crashes in a heavy metal band just because they feel good and they sound really good to you behind the kit but you have no mics and you know you got three guitar players with four 12 stacks on either side th those symbols aren't going to get heard and they're likely going to get broken because you're going to overplay them so i think a couple things when you're looking for symbols is to play them if you can get them on a kit all the better because that's another thing to take in consideration too is especially with smaller symbols i'll see this a lot where somebody will play a 10 inch splash symbol and they put it on their finger or they put it on a stand and they'll hit it and they'll say you know it's it's got too much sustain for me now a splash symbol is only going to have so much sustain to begin with but right. the the reality is that if if you play it by itself what you're hearing as sustain goes away immediately once you're playing it in the context of the drum kit or certainly in the context of a band situation because mm -hmm. You know, you just don't hear it once the initial attack is gone. And the reality is that you have to have some sustain in order for that symbol to be heard. So, right. you know, trying symbols in as close of a uh, real-world scenario as you would be using those symbols would be ideal. Mm -hmm. Of course, when you're in a music store, you know, that some of them have glass symbol rooms, which might not be great for the way the symbol's actually going to sound. And, of sure. course, you know, I mean, as a drummer, that's... That's one of the biggest challenges we all face. You know, you play one room one night and your kit sounds unbelievable and you don't do a thing to it and you go to a different room the next night and the kit sounds awful. Yeah. You know, because you might have a it's mirror behind you or who knows, you know. But uh, so just just play them the best that you can. I mean, as, as realistically as you can. And then, of course, from there, that's the sky's the limit as to what to choose because there's so many different sounds and it, it really becomes a personal preference as to what what makes you feel good when you're playing. So now, now do, when you do these Skype consultations with people, um, um, do they call they, with specific things like, hey, man, I play in a in a three-piece, you know, you know I, like I, a funk trio, yeah. or, yeah. or I play in a, you know, a, a local cover band. What do you think I should be using for my cymbals? Yeah, very. It's, it could be very specific. Uh, it could be sometimes it's, it's a, they have a, a very specific question about, uh, a specific symbol. So maybe the guy says, uh, I want to know all about Omni. And, you know, the conversation starts there. Usually it'll morph into something deeper than that, but it could be a scenario like you laid out. You know, I play in a heavy metal band, I play in a punk band, I play in a, a jazz trio, whatever, and I'm looking for a symbol that will provide this type of result. And then we start going down the path of, of what directions could get them there. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun, you know. It's it, it's a it's a fun opportunity to be able to talk to again, talk to the the person that's going to be using it, and help guide them in in their product selection. You know, so it is fun. Sure. What do you think the biggest mistakes that people make with selecting symbols? Probably, um, it, it would be falling into the category of uh, not thinking about the the audience aspect of what you're playing. Um, so making sure that the symbol is appropriate for the, the, either the way you play or the, the type of music that you play so that that symbol can be heard and do what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, I think we all have a tendency to, it, it's easy to overplay 
a symbol. And I, I don't mean uh, notes-wise. I'm just talking about dynamically. I mean, if you play it too hard just because you get into the music and uh, you just start hitting it. But a lot of times that happens when you're playing a symbol that's not giving you enough output to get to get you where you want to be. So that's when damage can start to happen is when you start to overplay. I mean, you can overplay anything and, and right. eventually break it. But uh, uh, I, I would say just not thinking through what it is that the objective of that particular symbol is. And, and then you got to compromise from there to make sure that you're comfortable as a player as well as the audience hearing what you want them to hear. Sure. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you can go out and you'll see bands playing and if i don't know about everybody else but for me if the cymbals sound bad it just it ruins my night <laughs> yeah well it does and it's and it's feel too i mean there's certain cymbals don't feel good to me when you hit them you know obviously heavier cymbals if you're a heavier player and using big sticks it takes a lot to get that metal going but uh you know i think feel is is equally important as sound but you're right you know and the thing with the industry drumming has changed really since you know my younger days because when i was young just getting started playing the drum kit was the primary investment mm -hmm. and that's more what kind of you know like snare drums in particular helped establish you know your personality your your sound behind the drum kit because you know back then there there wasn't the, the myriad of cymbal companies that we have now and there's certainly even even the companies that existed didn't have the breadth of assortment that's available now as far as sounds. So it was, it was more the drums, but now with, you know, as manufacturing has improved, you, the price of drum sets continues to come down while the quality goes up. But with cymbals, it's a little different because the, it, so much of it is based on raw material costs and copper in particular, it just keeps going up and up and up in price. And it's, it's, the prices haven't come down like they have on drum sets. The quality has improved in the sense that there's, there's more variety and there's more consistency and there's certainly more sound options and things like that. But the reality is now for most drummers that it's the cymbals that kind of create their uh, personality behind the drum kit. And it's also becoming the primary investment for drummers now because, you know, drum, we all get in our, our moods where you want to, different color drum kit or you want to try a different drum kit but usually the symbols will stay with you at least certain ones you know mm -hmm. if you find that ride symbol or hi-hats or whatever you usually keep those for quite a long time so sure yeah it's amazing you know when you start to look at if you want to change your symbols or you know i know in years past i've gotten a different gig you know and i'm like well these symbols aren't going to work for for this gig so i have to go out and and reinvest in some new symbols and that's the best way of saying it is reinvest because it's a lot of money to go out and, you know, buy a whole set of, of symbols for your kit. And you don't want to make the wrong decisions while you're doing it because you're just going to be wasting money on, you know, things that you shouldn't have bought. You know? Well, that's very true. And, you know, again, I guess that comes falls under the category a bit of uh, what's one of the biggest uh, mistakes or whatever somebody makes when they're buying symbols. And I guess it's, you know, getting getting something that's a little too one-dimensional, depending on what your scenario is. I mean, you know, if you play in a metal band and that's all you do and, uh, you know, you need symbols to accommodate that, that's fine. But if you're, you know, a, a, a jobber guy that's, you know, playing in three different, four different bands a couple nights a week, you need to kind of adapt and, and take, find symbols that are a little more versatile than mm -hmm. that. You know? So, like, for example, the 
one of my favorite ride symbols that we have is an HHX raw belt. I'm sorry, the uh, groove ride. And that's the stock groove ride is 21 inches in the catalog, but I've got a 22 version on my kit. I'm looking at it right now, as a matter of fact. And that nice, symbol nice. to me is, um, it's really versatile because you can, you can get out of it essentially whatever you want to get out of it. It's if you play tip on the bow and if you're doing a, a light jazz gig, it's got enough cushion underneath and enough warmth and body that it works in that situation. If you're playing a little more aggressively with the shoulder of the stick and you're kind of doing that wash ride mm -hmm. scenario, the symbol opens up really nicely and you can even crash it. And the bell is, is phenomenal on those symbols. So you can get a lot of cut out of the bell if you need to. So a symbol like that could cover, I could take that essentially to any gig and get by fine. You know, mm -hmm. uh, so thinking that way, too, as you put your cymbal sets together, depending on what you play, uh, gives you a little more flexibility that you can do other gigs more easily without having to buy additional cymbals. I got you. So now if you wanted if you want a drier ride, what or say any drier cymbal, do you want a thinner cymbal or do you want a thicker cymbal? Well, a couple things. Um, I just had a conversation with somebody else about about this there's first of all you know there's a lot of terminology that we use in the music industry dry being one of them when we talk about ride symbols for example now there's you know that's up to interpretation you know somebody's version of dry like my, my version of dry might be completely different than what somebody else thinks is dry and what what i'm finding is that you know more and more consumers tend to buy with their eyes first and then their ears. So they might look at a symbol that has a raw finish, for example, that's really dark and ugly looking and assume that that's going to be a dry sound just because it looks that way. But it's not always the case. Now, to answer your question, what makes a symbol dry? Generally, it's, it would be lathing would be the primary contributor to uh, how to control the dryness or the sustain of a symbol. Because hmm. wh what happens is when you, when you manufacture a symbol, all symbols are raw before they get laid. So, you know, you end up with this dark piece of burnt metal that looks like a symbol and it goes onto a lathing machine. And from there, the, the lathers will take a, a blade and draw it across that spinning symbol and actually remove metal from the symbol that cuts in what we call tonal grooves but it also tapers the cymbal, so the cymbal is thicker at the bell than it is out at the edge. So they keep applying more pressure as they come out towards the edge of the cymbal, so it thins it out, but it, it also cuts in these tonal grooves. And if any of you guys out there have played the Omni or have heard the Omni cymbal, that's one of the best illustrations I can give you as to what lathing does to a cymbal. Because if you play that cymbal in the bell out to the mid-bow where it's raw, it's very articulate, it's all stick definition and it's it's a pingy-ish ride, if you will. Mm -hmm. But as you start to play out further on the bow and you get into that lathe section, that symbol immediately opens up. And even the 22 sounds, it sounds more like a 16-inch thin crash when you play it on the outside because the lathing allows that symbol to open up. So depending on how aggressively or more importantly, I guess, how little you lathe it, the symbol will tend to be drier. Now, hammering impacts that as well. The more hammering you do to a cymbal will tend to dry it out. Uh, a lot of times what happens there is as you hammer the cymbal, primarily you hammer it for shape, 
the byproduct is obviously where the hammer peen hits the symbol, it's compressing the metal where the hammer hits it. That metal becomes more dense, and the sound vibrations can accelerate through that dense metal, and they decelerate through the non-compressed metal. And depending on where you position the hammer marks, how many of them, how large they are, how deep they are, all contribute to the sonic properties of that symbol. So that's how, you know, essentially we, we make two types of symbols, you know, B8 sheet symbols, and then B20 is everything else. So everything from XS20 all the way up through Artisan starts the exact same way with the exact same material. And what makes these sounds, symbols sounds different are the way they're hammered, the way they're shaped, the way they're lathed, uh, diameter, weight, all these things contribute to the end result. And that's how we can get so many different sounds out of the same metal. Hmm. That's I never knew. Well, I knew some of that, but there was a lot of it that I didn't know, especially with the hammering and the acceleration and deacceleration of sound. Well, you know, you can think about it like with hand hammered symbols, for example, we, you know, we're the only major manufacturer that still hand hammers symbols. And we don't do that just to say that we hand hammered symbols. Everything that we do in our manufacturing process is done to produce the sound that we're trying to produce. So what hand hammering does is it allows us to create a symbol with the lowest possible profile that, that you could have. So if you, if you took any symbol and you held it up and just looked at the cross section of it in front of you, so you're kind of looking at the side view of the symbol, the higher the bow radius is, like the more bend there is in that bow, the higher the pitch of that symbol will be. Uh, of course, weight, if it's a thicker symbol, it's going to be higher in pitch. Diameter, if it's smaller diameter, it'll be higher in pitch. But then if you go thinner, that lowers the pitch. And so you start to mix and match all these different uh, elements of the, the structure of the symbol, and it creates these different sounds. But you get to the hammer marks again. If you can envision taking just one pebble and throwing it into a completely still pond, you get this really nice radiating ring that comes out from where the, the pebble went into the pond. If you took a handful of those, pebbles and threw them into that pond each one creates its own wave and those waves start to collide and that's what happens with a symbol you know as they the you position these hammer marks in various places the sound kind of starts to pinball around and it starts to collide and that's why a hand hammered symbol is lower in pitch because it's got a very flat profile but it's also very complex sounding because it's got all of these hammer marks that are sending vibrations you know, in various directions throughout the symbol. Hmm. I'm over here. I'm over here taking notes. I'm like, <laughs> well, cause you know, it's like you said, there's so many different options and so many different variations and, and one small thing can really change the characteristic of a symbol. So is, is there a way to sort of, uh, start to narrow down your choices? You know, it's such, it's such an old, for me anyway, it's always been, you know, now I know what I like and I, you know, I, I know what sounds I'm looking for and stuff. But when I was younger, I would walk in, I'd see 85 different symbols and I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to, I don't know what to choose. I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what sounds good. I don't know, you know. So how do you suggest people kind of start to narrow down their, their choices? Well, I try to, I try to break everything down uh, to primarily what I call our four main food groups. So, you know, Sabian's got a lot of series now, but as far as cast symbols go, and cast are the, the B20 bronze, which is 80% copper, 20% tin. It's the alloy that most professional symbols are made out of, not all, but most. Um, 
we have four primary categories, AA, AAX, HH, HHX. If you just look at those four product categories, anything with an AA, whether it has an X or not, generally will be brighter than anything with an HH, whether it has an X or not. Now, of course, these are guidelines, and there's going to be brighter HHX symbols than some AAX symbols, but just as a, a way to try to get your head wrapped around why we have all these different symbols, just think of anything with an AA generally being brighter than anything with an HH. And then when you go break those categories down, AA and AAX, the first two series of symbols that Sabian produced were AA and HH. HH stands for hand-hammered, and we just talked about that a little bit. AA stands for automated anvil, and that means it's a machine hammering. Mm. And I would assume, I probably shouldn't do this, but probably most of your listeners know some of the history of Sabian, but um, if they don't, you know, essentially Avita Zildjian had two brothers that grew up, or two sons, I'm sorry, that grew up working in the Zildjian family business. And uh, when the father passed away, the, the brothers split. Armin Zildjian kept Zildjian Company in Massachusetts. And Bob Zildjian took over what was then called ASCO, Avita Zildjian Company, that was built in 1967 up in Meductic, New Brunswick, Canada, uh, as an outlet to be able to export out of North America Zildjian product without paying the tariffs that they had to pay coming out of the U.S. So um, in 1972, there's a gentleman by the name of Karapi Zilkan, and Karapi is spelled with a K. And Karapi is from Istanbul, Turkey, and Karapi is the K of K Zildjian. He's the, the hand-hammering guru that, you know, if you go back through the Zildjian history, it, there's a lot of family turmoil and strife. Oh, and I know. I know. Political, I mean, it's a crazy, convoluted story. But, you know, K. Zildjian and A. Zildjian were actually separate companies. And uh, in 72, Zildjian Company was going to bring Karapi over to Massachusetts, but U.S. immigration wouldn't let him in. So they decided to send him up to Meductic, New Brunswick. So in 72, he went up there and he trained everybody how to do all the hand hammering of symbols. So uh, the majority, vast majority of all the K. Zildjian production from 72 to 81 came out of Canada. And there's a, a lot of people talk about these Canadian K's that were really popular. So uh, when, when, the when the guy brothers split and Bob took over ASCO, Karapi stayed, everybody he trained how to do hand hammering stayed, and a number of other key Zildjian employees that were up there also stayed. So we inherited a lot of the, of the, the good that, that they had established. And mm -hmm. uh, that's why hand hammering was so important for us. And it allows us to, to be able to, uh, Nort Hargrove, who's our, our VP really of, of production up there, um, it's, you know, we talk about this a lot. And he said, it's really important not to lose the ability to completely make a symbol by hand because once you lose that, it's really difficult to get it back. You know, sure. it's kind of it's like your grandmother's chicken soup recipe or whatever. You right. know, if, that, if that paper gets lost and you don't know what that little secret bit of mojo was that she put in there, then you're not going to be able to make that soup again. So because we've maintained a lot of that old school style of symbol manufacturing, it, it's enabled us to be the most innovative symbol company in the marketplace because we can create. We don't have to rely on uh, morphing something that exists into something else. You know, we can start from scratch and, and come up with completely new sounds. And that's how we end up with all these different crazy sounds, whether they're ozones or sprimbles or uh, arrow crashes or you name it, you know, omnis, things like that, that uh, because these guys understand 
fully, you know, what each component of the symbol contributes to the overall sound. Um, you know, Mark Love is kind of the genius in that regard because we do a lot of custom shop symbols and we'll do that for anybody. You know, people will call up or whether it's an artist or just a customer and they'll say, you know, I'm really looking for this type of sound and they try to articulate it the best that they can. And Mark's got a knack for being able to either find it or if he can't find it, he'll make it. You know? Really? So hmm. I, I probably sidetracked there. I don't remember what our initial question was when I went down this path, but, uh, no, I well, we I was asking about just the different, the different. Oh, uh, you're right, the food group. So right, um, but no, that I I'm glad that you that you went down there because it was it was interesting for for numerous things. One to to let everybody know that you know I've known the the history uh, behind Sabian and Zildjian, but it was nice to hear it from you who really has an an inside view of of what happened, and also gives a little bit of explanation as to you know what's going on with all these symbols and how they're getting made. And Sabian stands for, that's the three, his three kids, right? Bob Zildjian's got three kids, Sally, Billy, and Andy. And uh, when, when, when he started Sabian, when he took over ASCO, uh, the only stipulations were that he couldn't sell symbols into the U.S. for one year, and he couldn't use the Zildjian name in any marketing or anything like that. So he sat down with his wife and he said, I'm going to continue to make the best symbols in the world, but we got to call it something. And, they looked at the kids' names, and they said S-A-B-I-A-N, Sally, Billy, and Andy. And that I-A-N suffix, it's very common, just like Zildjian. You know, it's a, a mm-hmm. kind of Turkish thing, so it worked. So that's where Sabian came from. Nice. That's awesome. It is. It's pretty cool. But let me get, let me just touch base real quick on those four series again, because I did get a bit sidetracked. But okay. if, if we look at A-A and A-A-X, A-A was the first series that we did, and it's uh, a machine-hammered, fairly aggressively lathed symbol with a relatively high bow profile. So it's a, it's a high energy symbol. And part of the manufacturing process is this, uh, it goes through a compression stage where it goes into a hydraulic press and 80 tons of pressure kind of pre-shape the symbol. So what happens when, when you do that is it actually stores energy in the metal. Just as if you took a spring and you compress the spring, there's energy that wants to be released. And how you get the energy out is a function of how you hammer that symbol and lay that symbol. So the net result is that an AA symbol needs to be played at or near its maximum potential to really speak the way it's designed to speak. So what happens is the harder you play it, think of it as a, you have a volume control, and as you turn the volume up, the high band of the EQ goes up with it. So that symbol not only gets louder, but it gets brighter the harder you play it. Mm-hmm. As you know, music progressed and drummers became more dynamic and music was changing and sounds were changing, we had a lot of drummers that liked the power that you got out of AA, but they wanted a symbol that was more consistent through the full dynamic spectrum. And that's where AAX comes in. We changed, went to a larger hammer mark. We went to uh, a different bell design. We went to a pinpoint lathing instead of the aggressive traditional lathing. And the net result of that is what we call dynamic focus, or essentially that symbol just has a volume control. So whether you're playing at a lower dynamic where you don't hit the crash too hard or you really lay into that symbol, essentially the, the frequency response will be the same. It's just the volume is going to change. So you've got more consistency through the full dynamic spectrum. HH and HHX are a similar relationship, HH being really dark because they're very flat, 
uh, very complex because of, of the hammering on those cymbals. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot, a lot of drummers out there that like the uniqueness and the musicality and the originality and all the cool things that you can find in HH, but they're playing, you know, Dave Garibaldi with Tower Power, for example. You know, he needs a cymbal that can cut above the horns and, and be heard. So that's where HHX came into play, where we intentionally raised the bow profiles, went to a larger hammer peen on those, incorporated the raw bell technology that we use, and now you've got a symbol that's got a lot of the characteristics of HH, but has much more projection and is better for that type of environment. So if you can just remember AA and AAX being high energy, AAX being more consistent through the full dynamic range, and then HHHHX being a little bit darker, more complex, but HHX having more projection than HH, that can kind of help you get a starting point as to at least maybe where you want to start looking based on your performance needs. So, so I'm, I'm actually uh, I'm writing this down right now. So the AA and the AAX are higher energy. AAX is a little bit higher uh, tonal, tonally. Well, AAX is more consistent frequency response through the full dynamic spectrum. Okay. Okay, so... Easiest way I can, you know, try to make you visualize it is, you know, AAX just has a volume control. So whether you're playing it soft or you're playing it loud, nothing changes on the EQ part of that. Mm -hmm. With AA, the harder you play it, as you turn that volume up, kind of those those higher bands of the EQ spectrum go up with it a little bit. So you get more okay, and more okay. highs out of the cymbal the harder you play it. Okay, okay. And then the HHXX, I'm just trying to make short notes here. Yep, and then exactly. so that's so that, a so that's so that, a darker. Dark. Both both will be darker than AA and AAX generally. HH being very dark and complex. Uh, you know, a lot of jazz drummers gravitate towards HH because jazz drummers tend to like to have their cymbals blend into the rest of the music as opposed to cut above it. It becomes mm -hmm. kind of part of what's going on. Whereas HHX has a lot of the unique characteristics of HH, but it's designed to project better. So if you're playing in a more dynamic situation and you need symbols to cut, uh, that's where HHX comes in. And of course, there's a, a million subcategories when you get into things like evolution and, and legacy and uh, all the various subseries within any given category. Uh, you know, the sky's the limit on finding the sound that you're looking for. Right, right, right. Well, cool, man. That's that's a lot more information than I ever knew about symbols. So, and I'm hey. sure, and I'm sure that the listeners got a ton of ton of information as well, man. That's well, that's I love it. You know, it's I've been doing this a long time, and I've I've been really honored to to get to hang with some of the the true geniuses of the symbol world uh, throughout my career, and it's it's fun for me to talk about it and and pass on. I know it's a ton of information, and it's uh hard to soak it all in at one shot but uh you know like i said i'm a skype call away if anybody wants to talk symbols so and that's you know that's the that's the beauty of it i strongly encourage anybody that they have any questions about you know about symbols or about the sabian stuff just go to sabian.com check out the sabian sound team and you can talk to greg zeller he's a super nice person and he is from a great town in pa so you can uh <laughs> he's a he's a good dude i know from experience so uh well Thank you very much, Nick. And same, same about you. And, you know, you're doing a great job with your, all your things you have going on in the drumming world. You well, know, thank you, you man. Your hand in everything. And I uh, hope your listeners appreciate it. And I certainly do. So well, good thank work you. out there. I appreciate it. And thank you again for doing this, man. I, I really do appreciate it. And I know that everybody else does. So Sounds great, man. All Anytime. right. I'll be talking to you soon, Greg. Thanks so much. Thanks all. All right. See you.
So I now officially know way more than symbols than I ever had before. And I hope you all got a lot out of that as well. Be sure to check out Greg at Sabian.com if you want to ask him some questions about symbols. And check us out, drummersresource.com, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. We're also on Instagram at drummersresource and on Twitter at drummersrsource. And if you want to grab that ebook, Stick Control Variations, you can get it for free at drummersresource.com just by signing up for the mailing list. It's normally $9.99 for free right now if you sign up for the Drummers Resource mailing list. Stick Control Variations, 11 creative exercises to improve your chops and independence fast. And until next week, we have Lil John Roberts on the next interview on Monday the 12th. And until then, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.